In this episode, we speak with Prashant Faloria, CEO of Fundbox, a financial platform for small businesses. The company is connected with nearly 300,000 businesses, unlocked over $2 billion in working capital, and invested over $100 million into its AI platform, gaining deep insights into the small business ecosystem. Fundbox is backed by Coastal Ventures, General Catalyst, Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan, MUFG Innovation Partners, BNY Mellon, Allianz, and others. Prior to joining Fundbox as COO in 2016, Prashant served as SVP Advertising at Yahoo and Chief Product Officer at Flurry. He was also the Senior Director of Product Management at Facebook and a Product Management Director at Google. We hope you enjoy the show. Prashant, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's a delight to be with you. Very excited for this conversation. I'm going to kick off in an area that's a little bit unique for our podcast. I noticed you have a PhD from Stanford and you lecture at other business schools as well. I think there's maybe a few business schools and would love to hear about the topic. Maybe you could give us like an overview of what you discuss. Maybe there's something interesting there we could you know, pull on. RJ, first of all, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I came to the US about 25 years ago with the goal of getting a PhD and becoming a business school academic. So I joined the PhD program at Stanford. And a couple of years into the program, I realized that I loved it. I loved the research. I loved what I was doing. But the role of an academic can be a somewhat lonely life, it's somewhat of a lonely profession. And I really wanted to work with people. I wanted to be in teams and work with other folks very, very closely, hand in hand. And to me, just joining a company, a tech company, obviously I was in Silicon Valley and have been there ever since, was just a natural thing to do. So I quickly graduated, got my PhD and joined startup. This was back in 99 when the Valley was blooming. A couple of years later, I was wondering, did I just make the biggest mistake of my life? I could have had a, maybe a more cushy job as a faculty in some business school somewhere. And here I am at a struggling startup when the valley and the world is crashing all around me. Well, things worked out okay. We sold the company. I joined Google in the early days. And I've been very fortunate to have been part of some very exciting companies over the course of my career. But I've always had a soft spot for teaching. And so whenever possible, I try to teach some very short courses. These are typically one unit courses for second year MBAs at business schools like Stanford. And I also taught in the past at, at Berkeley, Haas, and, and Cornell. And the course that I teach is something that I call how to build consumer-based internet businesses. And the idea here is just pretty much today, every graduating MBA needs to understand how the consumer internet works from the perspective of acquiring users, engaging them, monetizing them, and then also just how to use platforms and maybe become a platform yourself someday. And you don't have to be working in tech anymore to need that information. You could be a marketing manager for Procter & Gamble and working at a company that spends over a billion dollars every year in advertising, most of which is online. So all of a sudden now you have to figure out where should my ads show up? What does it mean to have my advertising, my marketing spend go here versus there? Or you could be an educator and you're working at a school district and you're trying to figure out how to engage your students. But well, your students are engaging with you increasingly through mobile devices, Chromebooks, and all of that. So how do you engage in your audience? So no matter what you're doing, whether you're in financial services or education or healthcare or what have you, 
just understanding how people engage on the internet and figuring out how to grow and retain your consumers, your customers is a really important thing. So that's what I really teach in my courses, really just a set of lessons and insights gleaned from having worked at companies like Yahoo, Google, and Facebook, but then also a couple of startups in between, I think are hopefully relevant for my students. That's a little bit about sort of what I do once in a while over the weekend. Are there any areas of consumer internet that you think are still ripe for a new entrant, maybe a new business, maybe an open space? I think there's plenty of open space. I think we're still in the early innings of the application of consumer internet principles to so many things. And I would say financial services, where I happen to work today, is just one of them. But there's literally everything ranging from hospitality and logistics to financial services to healthcare and so on. I think we're still in the early innings of these industries being transformed by different aspects of engaging with customers over the internet, whether it's through mobile, whether it's the desktop, or maybe increasingly in the metaverse. So I mean, I take a bit of a long-term view on these things. And I think that there is a very, very long and sort of fruitful set of opportunities in front of us across a variety of industries. Okay. So we'll hop over to Funbox. How is it that you've been able to maintain such a low loss ratio? And what is it about your underwriting standards or processes that have enabled you to perhaps outperform your competitors in the space? Sure. Happy to talk about that. So first of all, what is Funbox? We're a financial platform for small businesses. And the mission of the company is to use technology, uh, including AI, to be able to deliver innovative products that help small business owners better run and grow their businesses. So today, what we do is we harness the power of business transactions to be able to deliver working capital and spend management tools for our small business customers. The typical small business customer for Fundbox is really on the small end of small business. You might call them a micro enterprise. This is someone who is a sole proprietor or someone who's got a, you know, maybe a few employees, maybe a few dozen employees, making a few hundred thousand dollars to a few million dollars in revenue. So this is really where the bulk of small business is. I think if there are roughly about 30 million small businesses in the US, maybe 29 million of them are really in sort of in this category. They're really small end of small businesses. And the way we serve them is the products that they use are typically working capital solutions. So some business owners will connect their invoicing system or accounting system to Fundbox and use us as a way to unlock the money tied up in their unpaid receivables. Other folks will simply connect their bank account to Fundbox and let us use the business transactions in their bank account as a way to underwrite. We also offer a term loan product. And most recently, we've been going very rapidly a spend management product that we call FlexPay, which is to let just help our customers better manage their critical business expenses. So to your question about how have we been able to manage very good unit economics, customer level economics in a space where traditionally, you know, folks have thought of as being risky. I'd say there are two big pillars of this. And one's technology, and then the other is product. So let me explain that a little bit. So let's start with the product part. Our customers come to Funbox and come to our platform and use us over and over and over again for very short-term immediate needs. So the median repeat customer at Funbox 
uses the platform nine times a year. So we're very much in the working capital space at the intersection of credit and payments, where customers are using us to maybe unlock money tied up in an unpaid invoice or to be able to make a critical business payment. And because of the short duration and high frequency of our transactions, as well as the repeat engagement and the long-term retention of our customers, our customers really think of us as a tool in their toolkit that they want to be able to use over and over again. All of that drives very different behaviors from our customers. So for example, when COVID hit, and we can really talk more about that in the context of technology as well, but when COVID hit, I think what we realized was that it was really important for many of our customers to continue having access to that Fundbox platform. And I think under stress, people make utility maximizing decisions. And I think that's one of the reasons why our customers try to stay in good standing with Fundbox because there is so much ongoing utility, very different than I'm taking a loan from this particular provider. I'm never going to see them again. And so if I default or if I never work with them again, that's okay with me. It's a, it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is the tech. And so what we've done, and I think what we've really innovated on is using business transaction data to understand the dynamics of a small business and underwrite a transaction or a business. So rather than only look at something like the business owner's FICO score, for example, we require every business that comes to us to connect at least one business system. That could be their accounting software, their invoicing app, their e-commerce platform, or sometimes just their business bank account, because some of our customers don't have any of these. They just use a business bank account. And we read all these transactions that are in these systems, and we stitch them together into what we call a business graph. So if you think about a graph, just like you have a professional graph on LinkedIn, where the people are the nodes and the connections are your professional relationships, our graph is has small businesses as the nodes and their transactions as the relationship. So we see, for example, X is invoicing Y, A is paying B. And so over time, we've served almost 100,000 customers. We've had almost four times that number of customers, so closing in on half a million businesses, coming to us to connect their data to Fundbox. So we have a graph that now has well over 12 million entities in it, 12 million businesses in it. So we have this proprietary data asset on over 12 million businesses in a country where there are 30 million small businesses. So I think we are getting really good coverage with our own proprietary data set, to which, of course, we add other available data as well. And so our ability to sort of to take this business transaction data, put it in a graph, and then run these machine learning models to really use those signals is quite, one, differentiated and proprietary because we've built this ourselves and very, very effective mm-hmm. because our predictions are very good. And as a side note, it's also very inexpensive because the marginal cost of underwriting for us is almost zero. I don't know if you know this, RJ, but a typical bank will spend about three, $4,000 in human capital to underwrite a small business. And for us, that cost is like less than 10 bucks because it's just a little bit of data. It's a little bit of Amazon processing power. That's about it. And so we can run, and the marginal cost quickly goes down to zero. So we can run our machine learning models every day to just keep assessing the risk of a small business. And because we're talking about short duration working capital that's typically at the intersection of sort of payments and longer duration credit, we're able to be very effective and very nimble. And that's helped us continue to sort of have very, very strong credit performance as we scale the business through good times and through challenging times like what we saw in 2020. 
I'd be really fascinated to hear how the small business landscape is shifting. I'm not sure if you get this kind of view, but for example, if you had to segment that the 30 million uh, or even the 12 million that you have, if some are shifting out of certain sectors and into other sectors, whether that be small retail to into consumer products, and if it gets as nuanced as a healthcare or a younger consumer demographic, be very curious if there's any insights you glean from that. So there are a few things that stand out, and in no particular order. I think the first thing I'd say is that the small business economy is surprisingly resilient. So we've seen a record number of small business starts in 2021, and even in the second half of 2020. So there is a lot of entrepreneurship in the U.S. and actually around the world, people wanting to be their own boss, to do their own thing, to build their own thing. I think that's one thing. So we see a lot of new business activity. I think there may be a stereotype that entrepreneurs tend to skew young. But to be honest, I think if you look at the data, you see people at almost in every age group starting new businesses. And many new businesses are started by people who are in their 50s trying to do something different. In terms of the composition of the 30 million, you know, when you and I think about small businesses, we often think about the restaurant around the corner or the grocery store down the street as B2C because we're consumers. So the businesses that we see are typically B2C small businesses. It turns out that 20 million out of the 30, so actually the majority, the vast majority of small businesses are actually B2B in nature. So it's not the restaurant. Just to put this in perspective, there are about 1 million restaurants in the US. And don't get me wrong, that's big. It's a huge market. There are a number of successful companies that just serve restaurants. You could be a square or a toast or a light speed. And these are all great franchises that are serving this very important part of the market. But for every restaurant, if you think about it, there are many other businesses serving that restaurant. Who are all the people that are supplying food from the farm to the restaurant? Who are the people supplying cleaning and staffing services? Not to mention the accountants and heaven forbid, the lawyers who have to, and these are all small businesses too. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that B2B small businesses are actually many more. And they have the same challenges as the B2C businesses in the sense that they have to hire people, find customers and so on. But they face this additional challenge that they serve their customers, invoice them, and then they wait to get paid. Mm-hmm. So the average SMB is owed something like $80,000. That's the micro view. If you look at the macro view, there's almost a trillion dollars in unpaid receivables owed and due to a small business. Mm. And so that's this interesting stat. That stat just keeps growing every year with the size of the economy. And it represents a huge opportunity for us, for us to be able to take that $1 trillion and make it available to businesses through the power of data and AI. Some other trends, I think B2C small businesses started getting digitalized much earlier. So I think with platforms like Square, for example, or PayPal, frankly, in the online space, we've seen small businesses that are sent to consumers move more and more online, more and more digital. The world of B2B has lagged that by, I don't know, a decade. But now, especially with the pandemic and some of the changes that it catalyzed, you're seeing more B2B small business owners starting to adopt more digital tools. So rather than simply sending an invoice on paper in the mail, using an electronic invoicing solution. It could be a simple invoicing app or something more sophisticated, 
But now you're starting to see a little bit of that movement happening and accelerating in the world of B2B small businesses, which is great for us because that's where we're able to connect with our customers. So by the way, some of our customers use us directly. They use our mobile app. Other customers use us as we're integrated and embedded inside of their other systems like QuickBooks or their favorite invoicing app or the Synchrony Merchant Center or whatever. So it gives us more and more opportunities to be able to, to touch customers as well. So there's this broader trend about digitalization in the B2B SMB space that I think we saw start on the B2C side maybe 10 years ago. So you have a very compelling mission, particularly when you think about the number of jobs that this segment of the economy creates. And so I can see you attracting a lot of different capital sources. I had a couple questions on capital sourcing. One is, is this on balance sheet capital that you're extending out, or do you have kind of a link to other debt funding sources? So today we work with some debt providers to fund our originations. One piece of context that may be helpful is the actual amount of balances that we have to fund is actually relatively small given the size of our business. And that's because of our very, very rapid turnover. Mm -hmm. We're turning over the capital that we extend to our customers four or five times a year. So we could just do the 5x, we could originate a billion dollars in different kinds of working capital products with only a $200 million balance required. So our capital needs are fairly modest. And obviously, as you scale, those numbers just get bigger. Today, we are working with credit facilities. And as we scale, our intent is to just diversify that through things like loan sales, just so that we are keeping the quote-unquote balance sheet part of this very light. And that's sort of our strategy. We're a technology company, and we want to be able to serve as many customers as we can through technology and scale through tech. And what that means almost by definition is partnering with a number of folks who have capital, who want to deploy it into this part of the market. Mm -hmm. And then switching over to your investors, one question we always ask our guests, hence the name of the podcast, is about your growth investors and how they've added value to you and the company beyond financial capital? I think we've been very fortunate to have worked with some incredible investors. All the way from the early days, Kosla Ventures was, I think, led our Series A to our Series D that we announced last year that was led by the Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan, who are very active in the world of fintech and have been part of the journey of companies like Upstart and so on. Obviously, capital is important, but there is a lot of value beyond just the capital. That sort of highlight a couple of things. One is, it's incredibly important for us to be working with investors who are thinking long-term. Because we're building a company for the long-term. I'm excited about where Fundbox is, but RJ, I'd love to be talking to you 10 years from now about Fundbox and looking back and seeing how much we've grown. And so for us, our decision-making is typically with an eye towards just building enormous value in the long term. And so it's really helpful for us to have long-term investors. I think the other thing is investors contributing value, helping us in our journey. I'll give you a couple of examples. So back to Coastal Ventures, David Biden is one of the founding partners of Coastal Ventures. He's been on the Funbox board since our Series A. And he has probably seen dozens, if not hundreds of companies in his experience 
go from that initial series A or seed stage to being successful public companies to continue to add a lot of value in the public market. And so he's got this incredible perspective that he shares with us that helps us and like particularly me think about where we are in that journey. And I think very importantly, how we need to keep changing ourselves, how I need to keep changing myself as the company grows from being like a successful series A, you know, kind of early stage venture to now really very much in the growth stage as a series D company with an eye towards being a public company in the hopefully not too distant future. So that, that perspective is really, really helpful. Another example of, and this is of a later investor, this is Hoop, which led our series D. So Srirang Apte, who is the lead at Hoop, he's, he's a board observer, and he's just incredibly experienced in the world of fintech and financial services, and in particular, really understands and has deep expertise in credit. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Hoop introduces us to all sorts of credit investors, structured finance folks with whom we could partner and basically work with to help them achieve their goals around financial returns while helping us stay focused on the technology and building these products that can help our customers. So again, just really, really excited about the kinds of investors we have. Obviously, we have some strategics as well. So Synchrony Bank's an investor. So is Allianz, one of the largest financial services companies in the world. And they bring a different, or MUFG, which is Japan's largest bank. And then they just bring a different kind of expertise and experience and maybe sort of strategic opportunities that are would be helpful for us. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming up on time and I'd like to ask a couple questions more on the personal front, but still professional related. One is, can you tell us about a book that you've read that has perhaps had a profound impact on you or simply one that you would recommend to others? When I was very young, my father had me read books by Dale Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are many of them. They have a few themes. And you might think these are outdated and old and all of that. But I think I really learned a few lessons from Dale Carnegie's writings, in particular, how to think about working with people and just some of the fundamentals around how people think about themselves, how they're looking at things from their perspective. And the more you can understand where they're coming from, the more you can help them get what they're looking for, the more effectively you can work with them is something which I think is timeless. And to be honest, it's probably been about 25 years since I read a Dale Carnegie book, but because I read them so often when I was just growing up, I think they've stayed with me for a while. And of course, there's just incredible books all along that I've read since then. But I guess how to, what was it called? How to win friends and influence people. I don't even know if that's the name of the book. I've read that. Yeah. Yeah. It still makes a lot of sense. Yes. It's a great recommendation. Moving on to our last question. Is there a leader or can be a CEO, can be a leader in a different domain, but is there a leader that you think is particularly helpful and has some compelling attributes that you try to draw from from time to time? I think I've been fortunate to work with a number of incredible people. And I think I've been very privileged to be able to observe folks from up close and see what makes them tick and how they operate and how they evolve themselves based on changing circumstances, often growing companies, growing responsibilities and all, and so on. 
Now, the person I'll mention is someone whom I've never actually met, but I know a number of folks who've worked with him or for him. I think he is very inspirational, and that's Satya Nadella at uh, Microsoft. Two things that stand out for me are, one, empathy. So today, it's very fashionable to be empathetic. But I think this was sort of his style even like a decade ago or two decades ago. So he's been very true to the style of leading with empathy for a long time before it became a buzzword. And I think he's been very effective at it. I think the other thing that's really striking about him is how he brought clarity to Microsoft. And if you recall, when he joined, trying to separate Microsoft from just the over-reliance on Windows Mm -hmm. and think more about the cloud and how he brought clarity to a huge organization through a number of changes, a number of the things that he communicated. It's also extremely impressive. And Microsoft probably has somewhere between 100 to 200,000 people. So it's hard to drive clarity in an organization at that scale. And all of that put together has also led to great business results. So ultimately, as a CEO, you do have to deliver business results. And Microsoft has done an incredible job of really repositioning itself in the market, whether it's the cloud platform, whether it's their SaaS products like Office Live, and their successful acquisitions of LinkedIn and and GitHub. So really transformed Microsoft, which is very, very impressive. Well, Prashant, this has been a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time and all the insights. I know our audience will find this very helpful. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. 